at Grace Point, it is so good to see you this morning. We're so glad you're here, or this afternoon, or evening, or wherever, whatever it might be when you're watching this. Um, we're so glad you're here. If you're joining us for the very first time, wherever you are in the world, welcome. We are so, so glad you found us, and um, thrilled to have you with us this morning. Um, today in the U.S. is a day known as Mother's Day, and we want to take just a minute to recognize the complexity of this day. Um, for so many people, that for lots, and pe- lots of people, this day is a day of sentimentality and joy and cherished memories. And for lots of other people, this day is a day of grief and loss and sadness. And as a community, we just want to make sure we have space for all of that. Um, so whatever you're feeling today, know that we are with you, that we love you, and that um, virtually we are embracing you today. And we also want to say that mothering happens in all sorts of different ways and comes through all sorts of different people in our lives. And so to those of you who um, practice this sacred art of mothering, we are grateful for you and grateful for the way you shape our lives and shape our world. Um, And so thank you for being who you are in the world. And so today we're also continuing a series we've been in called Bible Stories for Grownups where we've been coming back to stories that for many of us we heard as kids and we, we never really changed our lenses. We heard them as kids, they were interpreted for us as kids and we've grown up holding on to those interpretations and when we come back to them, they maybe don't make sense or they, they make us uncomfortable, not in the way that a story could. This story today makes me uncomfortable but for different reasons than this story used to make me uncomfortable. Um, and we're gonna look at another parable. Last week we heard a parable of Jesus and we talked that, about parables being It's this word that means to cast alongside. So a parable is essentially taking something known and then comparing it to something, no, actually it's this. It's taking something unknown and then comparing it to something known. It's taking this thing that might be mysterious. It might be a bit enigmatic. It might, you might not have the right words for it, but it's taking this thing and saying, if you really want to understand this, then here's something to compare it to. Or uh, sometimes in, in a story like today, maybe it's here's something to contrast it to. And so we're going to continue this work of digging into a parable of Jesus. And for Jesus, these parables are always, uh, or at least most often, they're about giving us insight into what the kingdom of God or in the gospel of Matthew, the language is kingdom of heaven. But seeing what this, uh, this reality that Jesus is inviting people to experience and participate, not sometime else, not when they die or not in the distant future. Jesus is inviting people into this in his own day and age, and he's still inviting us into this in our own day and age. And the story this week is known most often in some archaic language. It's known as the parable of the talents. Uh, a talent in the ancient world, in the Roman uh, world, was a unit of weight. It was around 80 pounds, but it was also a unit of currency. And a talent was about 6,000 denarii. And I'm sure everybody's doing this on your calculator. You know what it is, what it come out, comes out to. But if you don't, a, denar- a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So, uh, so a talent is 6,000 days wages. And I got out my calculator and figured out that that is more than 16 years pay. So a talent is a lot of money. And we're going to see a lot of talents and a lot of money in this story. Now you're going to hear it read from Matthew 25, uh, 14 through 30. But before you do that, let me just say, in this translation we're going to read, it's the Common English Bible. It's a a newer modern translation. And they don't use the word talent in this story. They just talk about it as valuable coins. So let's take a minute, let's hear this story, and then we'll come back and ask questions like, what do we do with this story today? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one, he gave five valuable coins. To another, he gave two, and the other, he gave one. He gave each according to their abilities. Then he left. After the man left, 
The servant with five took them out and began to do business with them and gained five more. In the same way, the servant that had received two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received one coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master returned and settled accounts. The one with five came forward and said, you gave me five and I gained five more. The master said, excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of more. Come celebrate with me. The second servant came forward. Master, you gave me two. I gained two more. Master said, well done. You are a good and faithful servant. Come celebrate with me. The one who had received one coin said, Master, I knew you were a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. Master said, you evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain I haven't sown and I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. You should have given my money to the bankers so that when I returned, you could give me what belongs to me with interest. Take from him the coin and give it to the one with 10. Those who have much will receive more and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little they have will be taken away. Take the worthless servant and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding teeth. All right, so another interesting, maybe that's the word used for it, uncomfortable, challenging story. Uh, before we jump into sort of interpreting the story, fun fact. Um, the meaning most of us associate with the word talent probably is this idea of a special skill or ability, right? When you hear the word talent, we, we have talent shows, and it's not people bringing up bags of money, right? It's people coming up and doing the thing that they do, singing, doing a magic trick, a dance, uh, comedy. They're doing something that they have skill at. Um, you may not know this, but that meaning was derived in the 15th century, and it was derived from this story, from a specific line in the story that you heard that says that the man who entrusts his valuable coins, his talents, to these servants, he did so based on according to their ability. And so this idea, according to their ability, is what has turned this word talent into meaning some sort of skill or uh, some sort of you know, extraordinary ability that we might have, which plays into the traditional interpretation most of us were handed, that the man in this story who goes on a journey is uh, sort of a stand-in for Jesus. He goes on a journey, and he's going to come back, and you better be ready for when he comes back because it's going to get real when he comes back. Um, and he invests his servants with gifts and abilities that they're to use in the world on behalf of the kingdom of God. And when he comes back, if you haven't used your gift or ability well, if you haven't responded correctly to the gift or ability, then you're gonna get what the third servant in that story you just heard gets, which you're gonna get thrown out in the darkness where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. And so I know that that is the traditional interpretation of the story that we have been given for hundreds, thousands, almost, probably almost 2,000 years in some, some, some aspects. But let's, let's try to set that interpretation aside because I don't think that's how Jesus' first hearers or how Matthew's audience would have heard this story in their original context. So if we can just push pause on that, set it aside, and maybe ask what, what else may be going on in this story? How else might we interpret it? And we have to begin with the beginning because that's where all good stories begin. They begin in the beginning. The kingdom of heaven is like a man leaving on a trip. And last week we talked about this, this, 
sort of the answer is always God, the answer is always Jesus, and how we jump to finding the most powerful person in the story and trying to assign that person, well, that's the God character, that's the Jesus character in the story. But I wanna caution this once again, we saw last week that it actually wasn't the person who was powerful in enacting violence, that actually the, the God character, the Jesus character was found in the person who was actually receiving the violence in that story. And I, I just spoiled the entire sermon, but don't, don't, don't turn that, I almost said radio dial. We're not doing this on radio. But don't change the channel, whatever it is you do. Uh, let's just also set aside this understanding. Like, let's not read this as automatically that this is a representation of Jesus in this story. And actually, Luke does us a favor. When Luke tells his version, which is different, Luke actually takes a parable, he changes the unit of, of money, but he takes the parable and he sort of scrunches it in in the middle, sandwiches it in amongst another parable. Uh, and that sort of the way he does that gives us a little insight. Listen to what Luke says. He says that the man goes on a journey and he goes on a journey to be made king. Now, if you were in the first century and not the 21st century and you heard this story, all the little lights on your dashboard would be blinking because this is exactly what would happen in the ancient world. Herod actually went to Rome to be given power to rule over Judea. This is a thing that would have happened, they would have known about in their lifetime. This would have been, for many of them, Jesus hears, this would have been the reality. So when they hear that, when you hear this, we're not talking about God. We're talking about a different sort of character, a different powerful character. And when he goes on this journey, he calls his servants and he handed his possessions over to them. And so I think before we can really interpret this story well, we need a crash course in how the economy worked in the first century world of Jesus. And I, I wanna say this, I had one economics course in college and I passed with a D because the professor believed in grace. So I'm not a numbers person, but I, I, I can read what other people write. And I wanna share a little bit about how the ancient world economy worked. Specifically, Rome was called, a dom, is what scholars call a domination system. Um, and this domination system worked in a specific way. The majority of people in the Roman Empire, definitely the majority of people in first century Palestine, would have been people who lived in the peasant class, people who literally worked every day for bread for that day. When Jesus says, give us today our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, that's a very literal ask. We, we need food for today. And so in Jesus' world, the majority of the people were in the peasant class, and they were victimized by a much smaller, one to two percent of the population who were wealthy landowners. It, it, we could say like it was an exploitative economy. It was the rich exploiting the poor so that they could get richer and richer and richer. A writer named William Herzog II has a book called Parables as Subversive Speech, and here's what he says. The elites used their wealth to make loans to peasant farmers so that the farmers could plant crops because right? they, they can't get seed. And so these wealthy landowners would make them a loan so that they could go get seed. Interest rates were high. Estimates range 60, up to 60%, and sometimes as high as 200% for loans for crops. So this is an exorbitant interest rate. The purpose of making such loans was not to make a large profit, at least by the standards of the ancient world, but to accept land as collateral so that the elites could foreclose on their loans in years when the crops could not cover the incurred debtedness. This is a racket, and the racket, the point of the racket is if we can put them over under on their land, then we can foreclose on their loan and then we get their land and then we can plant on their land and we can get more and more and more. We might say that, that 
that this situation, like a person of trade, for example, a carpenter, which Jesus, it's the Greek word tecton, and it actually can mean, we think of a, a carpenter working with wood, it actually can mean like a stonemason even. But if you're a carpenter, what that means is that you no longer have your ancestral family land. Because if you had your ancestral family land, you would be planting crops, you would be harvesting, you would be working on your ancestral land. And so when you meet people of trade in the Bible, it's very likely that they have been the victims of this system. So as Jesus, who is in, I think, the Gospel of Mark, he's called the carpenter. Um, Jesus, this story very likely would hit close to home with his own personal experience, or at least the personal experience of his family, of his mother and father, who maybe they or their grandparents or whatever lost their family land in a system like this. And the way the wealthy would do this is they wouldn't get their hands dirty on their own. They had this group of people called retainers, people from their household, people within their orbit, who they trusted to be the go-between. And so the peop- these are the people who actually got their hands dirty. These are the people who would do the work of exploiting um, to benefit the wealthy landowner. And of course, they would benefit themselves in the process. As they uh, got more land, as they got m- more uh, crops, as they did all that work, they would be enriched and they would be enriching the landowner. So when you think about Jesus and the Lord's Prayer, again, right, give us today our daily bread. When you think about Jesus saying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, turning that into like trespasses as a reference for sin is a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus, I think this is one of the parts of the Bible that are very literal. Forgive us our debts because it's driving us out of our land. Forgive us our debts because it's starving us to death. And may we also in turn forgive those because if I get my debts forgiven and then I, and I also forgive your debts, everybody's debt-free. It's this concept in the Bible called Jubilee, which was this idea that every 50 years, you would essentially tear up the debt log and you would, like the visa headquarters gets burned out, like whatever, right? Like at the end of every, you get a fresh start. Uh, And there's actually no evidence, even though it's in the scripture, there's no evidence that it was ever practiced because even back then, that is a really, really hard concept to implement. But it's what Jesus, I think, is asking for. And so this man entrusts his property to his servants. Another way to say that is this man entrusts his servants to exploit everybody else on his behalf while he goes over and acquires more land somewhere else and sets up another exploitive economic system in another place. And after the man left, he goes on the journey. We're told that the servant who received five talents, five valuable coins, went and put them to work and immediately doubled it. We're told that the servant that received two put those two coins to work and immediately doubled it. And then we're left with this last, the third servant who gets one coin. And here's what Matthew says. The servant who'd received one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. And then after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. If there were a, it'd be neat to have a Bible that comes with sound effects. Maybe that's a thing we should do someday. But if there were a sound effect at this part of the Bible, it would be dun, 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 right? Because this is the moment when the master returns and you are now accountable for what you have done in the master's absence. And of course, because we've been conditioned to understand this story in a particular way, we're thinking this is when Jesus comes back and everybody gives an account for what they've done. Let's shelve that for just a minute and let's listen to what happens in the story. The master comes back and realizes that two of the servants have done really, really well. They've doubled the investment he gave them. They've exploited people nicely and they have done really, really well. And so the master says, well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. Because when you double your investment, that's a thing you celebrate, right? 
And then there's the third servant. And just imagine the camera panning over to the third servant who's standing there with dirt on his hands and under his fingernails because he went and dug up the coin that he buried when the master left. And Matthew says, now the one who received one valuable coin came and said, master, I knew that you were a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. Like you have this reputation of being a person who takes what's not yours. So I was afraid. I didn't want to lose the coin you gave me. So I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here's what's yours. Does this sound like God? Does, does this sound like the God Jesus talks about? Hard? Harvesting where she hasn't sown? Reaping where she hasn't planted seed? Is that what God is like? Is that, is that how we understand the divine? And then his master replies, you evil and lazy servant, you knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown and then I gather crops where I haven't spread seed? Well, in that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has 10 coins. So you have this one guy, one coin, right? You have this other person, 10 coins. He says, this person is wicked, evil, and lazy. Take the one from them and give it to the one who already has. Notice the master in this story doesn't refute sort of the, the picture that's painted by the servant. He doesn't say, you've got the wrong image of me. I'm, I'm not that way at all. I'm not hard. I, I, I'm not a person who harvests where I haven't planted or reaps where I haven't sown seed. That's, is that what you think of me? You've totally misunderstood me. The master sort of just says, yeah. He leans into it. That's exactly who I am. And since you know that, you should have invested it and made interest. By the way, this master encourages this person to invest and gain interest and taking interest was actually condemned in the Torah. So this master is essentially encouraging a practice of exploiting a fellow Israelite that was banned in the first five books of the Bible. Is this what God is like? Is God angry that you, you just didn't make enough interest on the investment? And then the master continues, those who have much will receive more and they will have, and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. This, does this sound like God? Again, does this, this sounds like the God of Wall Street, right? The one who has much takes from the one who has very little and then they have nothing and they have more. Is this what God is like? Is this what Jesus is like? It might sound like modern politics. They get argued back and forth, but it doesn't really sound very much like Jesus. And, and what's interesting is when Luke tells the story, he includes another detail that's, I think, is an interpretive clue for us. In Luke 19, 11, he says this. This is before the parable begins. As they listened to this, Jesus told them another parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought God's kingdom would appear right away. So before Luke's version of this story, he says, look, they were getting ready to go into Jerusalem and everybody was talking about how when Jesus hits the city, the kingdom will come. And then Jesus says, actually, there's a story you need to hear first about this wealthy landowner who goes away and he gives his property to his servants to invest. And there's this one servant who chooses not to invest, who chooses not to participate in this exploit exploitive system. And this servant gets thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's almost like what Jesus is saying to them is, don't assume the kingdom will come right away. It's almost like what he's saying is, 
this won't be instantaneous and it won't be easy. It's almost like he's saying the empire won't just let us create a brand new social order that upends their way of doing business. There will be a cost to this order. There will be a cost for the kingdom to be brought on earth as it is in heaven. I think again, just like last week, that Jesus isn't in the wealthy and the powerful. We find Jesus in this story in the one who was thrown out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think this is because Jesus refused to participate in an exploitive economic system. I think Jesus' death is as much about economics as it was about religion or as it was about politics. Now, I think there are a couple other stories that help shed a little light on this. So I'm not gonna read the whole stories. I just wanna bring them up and, and make a couple references. One is the whole, uh, in Matthew 22, a couple chapters before this, there's the whole render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You remember that story where Jesus is asked a question about, is it right for us, the, sub, the Jewish subjects of the, of the empire, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar. And that Jesus' response to that is give Caesar what is Caesar, give God what is God. That gets interpreted a bunch of ways. But what's the fascinating detail in this story is when Jesus gets asked, Jesus responds by saying, show me a coin. What do you find interesting about that? What doesn't Jesus have? Jesus doesn't have a coin. The people asking him the question about should we pay taxes to Caesar, pull out Caesar's image from their pocket and say, here it is. Jesus doesn't have a coin. It, it's interesting that w when this discussion comes up, Jesus is like, I don't, I don't, have, I don't know what you're talking about because I don't have one of those coins. And then a couple chapters before that, there's this really weird story where somebody asks about Jesus paying the temple tax. They ask one of his disciples, Peter, they say, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And Peter responds, of course he pays the temple tax. And then he comes back and goes, Jesus, do you pay the temple tax? And Jesus enters into this interesting discussion. But again, in this story, and he actually tells Peter, look, here's what you do. We don't wanna cause offense. Go to the lake, throw out your line, catch a fish, open the fish's mouth, and in the fish's mouth, you'll find enough money to pay the temple tax. Again, what's interesting, Jesus doesn't have a coin. It's like Jesus, in these interesting moments in the story, when he's being asked about really concrete money things, when he's being asked about taxes, when he's being asked about how we inter interact with this, Jesus is like, I don't know, I don't have, I'm not participating in that system, so I'm not really sure what you're talking about. So here's what I think. I think Jesus never has a coin when he's asked about how they'll be spent. And in the parable of the talents, we're supposed to see Jesus as the servant who refuses to enter into this exploitive system, meaning he doesn't participate in systems that exploit and victimize other human beings. So I think the cross was a religious, political, and economic response for Jesus to Jesus' refusal to participate like a well-behaved Roman subject. I think that's what's going on in this story. And the question we've been asking every week is like, what does this have to do with us? That's where we always wanna go. What does this mean for us? And I just wanna say up front, these stories make me really, really uncomfortable. They do, um, in the way they're supposed to. Not because, gosh, I have to explain why God is just killing people and throwing people around willy-nilly, but because if we get down to what's actually going on, this is, this is a challenging story for me. It's a bit, I bet it's a challenging story for many of you, and we can move on quickly and just like flip to the next chapter. We can rationalize it. We can ignore that discomfort, or we can actually engage it. And maybe there's not a quick fix. Maybe there's not like a three-step plan of what we do when we hear this sermon and how we go and interact with the world. But I know we'll never make progress by ignoring these challenges. We'll never be able to uh, 
move forward with sort of these challenges that convict us and discomfort us. And maybe that's what they're supposed to do. So just a couple thoughts as we think about uh, what, this, what we do with this story and how we begin to maybe think through how it impacts us. Um, let me ask us this question. What do we do when there are more than 690 million people in the world who are going hungry? And by the way, that number had been on decline for about a decade, and now it's back on the rise again. We have 690 million people in the world who are going hungry, and here in the U.S., we waste between 30 to 40% of our food supply every single year. 690 million people starving to death, and we waste 30 to 40% of our food supply in this country. What do we do? Like, what do we do with that? What do we do when we have all, all this, and there are people literally starving to death? How does our participation in the economic system cause harm to other people? Maybe we should ask that question. Who's making our clothes? I don't know who's making my clothes. Do you know who's making your clothes? Who grew my coffee beans? And, and did they get a fair price for those coffee beans? Where does the sugar we use come from? Right? Because there, there are people literally in the Dominican Republic who are in, being enslaved to produce the sugar we put in our tea and in our coffee. How, do I, what, how does what I choose to buy or how I spend my money contribute to the further marginalization and oppression of the most vulnerable people, not only in this country, but around the world? One, one application of this story might be to, a call to divest from companies and products that refuse to practice a just and equitable ethic. Right? Maybe that's one of the calls. Right? There's the reason the third servant gets sort of thrown out at the end of the story because asking these questions makes things really difficult for everybody. Yet it's this challenge of creating a more just and equitable world for all of God's kids that I think is what we've been given as followers of Jesus. That is our call, a more just and equitable world, which means followers of Jesus shouldn't be the people going, shh, 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 don't ask that. Followers of Jesus should be the people with megaphones saying, what are we doing and how do we do it better? Who are we harming and how do we harm no one. What if we could have a world where everybody had enough? I think that's the Jesus vision for the world. I wonder how you're hearing this story. I wonder how the Spirit might be speaking to us through this story. I want to close with one more quote from William Herzog in his book, Parables of Subversive Speech. And I think it's really interesting. Herzog, he describes the third servant who gets kicked out. He describes the third servant as a whistleblower. Because the servant, by refusing to participate, is whistleblowing the entire system and exposing it for the unethical, uh, damaging, uh, creating human carnage system that it was. Um, he says, the whistleblower is no fool. He realizes he will pay a price, but he has decided to accept the cost rather than pursue the exploitive path. Look, we know what happens to whistleblowers, right? Look what happened to Reality Winner, who's still sitting in prison. We know what happens to whistleblowers. Rand Paul wants to read your name in front of the Senate. But we also know that whistleblowers sometimes are the people who have the courage to really bring about, shed light on things that are really, really painful and awful and harming. And this person in this story, what if Christians, what if our role in the world is to be whistleblowers when we see injustice and when we see people being oppressed and marginalized, we should be the people going, really, is this what we're doing? What if we began to see the cross as one massive whistleblow on the way we think we can kill our way to peace? That if we can just get rid of the people causing the problem for us, then we'll be in this nice, happy world where everything goes the way we want. The whistleblower knows there will be a price to pay, but he decides to accept the cost rather than to pursue the exploitive path.
my only prayer at the end of this uh, story is God help us to do the same. Thank you.